local music show is a very cool show that happens every Wednesday night from 9 to 11 p.m. right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Every week we have a live band performing in the studio that's from around here. And we'll even play your band on the show if you send us your CD. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 for the local music show. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, I'm happy to say that here in the studio is John Weir. John, welcome. Hi. Welcome to Living Writers. Uh, thanks. <laughs> we had a little Aretha there to start us off. Indeed. <laughs> Maybe I'm a fool. Indeed. I love Aretha Franklin. This is my first time in Michigan, by the way. So. Oh, is it? Yeah, I've never been here before. I went to college in Ohio, but... I've Ohio. Never... Yes, Ohio, which is <laughs> under us, gro- I guess. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some people would say, well, you know, you have to, there's that rivalry, you know. <laughs> but I've never been in Michigan, so I'm kind of excited. Oh, well, welcome. And, you, and you, you're you coming to town. Um, you're here um, to to read tomorrow for um, in recognition of World AIDS Day, yes. Day Without Art, yes. um, at the University Art Museum here. And you've also been today, um, you're having a long day, you've been at David Halperin's class. <laughs> yes, I went to two classes and talked to his students about uh, my novel, What I Did Wrong, which his students read. And so that was really fun. His students were great. They were really smart and lively and fun. And that's probably why I couldn't find a copy of it in town. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was looking <laughs> Everyone for it. had bought it up, perhaps. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Although I got very lucky. I got The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket uh-huh. um, just nearby at Don Treader uh, Bookshop. So oh, okay. So one of the, the, the few remaining, because our bookshops yeah, are struggling right now. Yeah, where is that? I noticed right you, I, I couldn't find a bookstore. I was looking for one last night, but. Which is, yeah, we used to have a handful right in this, a stone's throw from the station, huh, John, huh. but now it's it's actually on Liberty, um, just past where Borders used to be. Oh, okay. On that side of the road oh, across from the again. Michigan Theater. Oh, yeah, oh okay. So, yeah, do, do stop by. And then if you walk further down Liberty, um, uh, towards the w- out west of town, West Side Bookshop is there, or or on Agatha's uh, Mystery Bookshop is, oh, okay. is down there, too. So we've got some... I'm a total bookstore maven. That's all I really do is go to bookstores. So, and it's you know, there more and more independent bookstores are closing, even in Manhattan, which has a lot of them. But it's 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 horrible. So, I like to support local bookstores. You know, wherever I go. Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, yes, yeah. and and they they support you too. Oh, they had the get, book. Yes. Oh, all the more reason to go there then. <laughs> exactly. Indeed. <laughs> um, well, without further ado, I'll actually, I'll read you the short bio from the back of what I did wrong. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get truly going. Cool. John. Um, John Weir's nonfiction pieces have appeared in the New York times, Rolling Stone, spin, tri-quarterly and Gulf coast. And in many anthologies, including the Columbia reader in lesbian and gay studies, taking liberties and beyond queer 
His first novel, The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket, 1989, received a Lambda Literary Award for Best First Novel. An associate professor of English at Queens College, CUNY, he lives in New York City. Um, yeah, so what, well, we should fill in some pieces then. Too, sure. <laughs> of the, um, because when you when you um you when you were writing John you were writing a lot of the the nonfiction were you a journalist first is that the the um no. out in the world um writing pieces well the for... first thing I got published I was a student at the MFA creative writing program at Columbia University and I took an autobiography class with a woman named Joyce Johnson who had written a book called Minor Characters about. Um, growing up in New York City in the 1950s and getting to be friends with Jack Kerouac and ultimately his girlfriend. And she wrote this autobiographical novel about herself and partly about Kerouac. And she was a wonderful teacher. And she had us all write um, just an autobiographical assignment of whatever we wanted. And I happened at that point, it was 1987, I guess. And I had just done a lot of work through the gay men's health crisis in New York City, um, going to visit men who had AIDS and making dinner for them and stuff like that. So I wrote a piece about that for her class and she liked it and gave it to an editor she knew who happened to be the editor of Harper's Magazine. So it got published there. And I thought, wow, my writing career has begun. Lift off. <laughs> yeah, lift off indeed. <laughs> and of course, you know, it was three more years before anything got published. But but then I um then I finished my first novel at Columbia, The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket and uh, sold that, I guess, three months after I finished the program. And that came out. And then because of that book, I got some journalistic work. There was an editor at Details Magazine who was looking for new writers, and somebody mentioned my name to him, and he called me up, and I went and talked to him. He read the book, and then he started giving me little tiny book reviews to write. This is in the early 90s. I wrote little film and, like, 50-word film <laughs> reviews for Details Magazine. And then Somewhere along the line, they gave me something longer to write, and then I started writing stuff for them. And that was ninety three to ninety seven, about yeah. So when I was when I was doing time. a lot of journalistic stuff, yeah, indeed, indeed, which was really fun. I, I um, I couldn't really believe anyone would pay me to do it. <laughs> actually, because you wrote about um, you retraced the footsteps of Timothy McVeigh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before the federal building plumbing. Yeah, they gave me the assignment to the my editor at Details to go to. Kingman, Arizona, where Timothy McVeigh had lived in the month before he blew up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. And they asked me to drive across country from Arizona to Oklahoma City and kind of retrace his steps, um, and which was completely fun and scary, too, because in, in Arizona, in Kingman, uh, I got sent to talk. I mean, I, I kind of showed up in town not knowing anyone not having any contacts and I went to the Chamber of Commerce and said does anyone here know Timothy McVeigh and she said oh yeah he stayed in that motel down the street and so I went to the motel and I stayed in the room that he had lived in and then I talked to the guy at the motel and he said well you might want to talk to some people some militia guys who live up in the mountains and it took me two days to find them they were so in my rental car they were so far away up in the mountains these militia guys who would this man and, and his wife who had kind of remotely known McVeigh, and they were survivalists living in the Arizona foothills. And uh, I talked to them for, I don't know, three or four hours. And they were really the 
most polite, like pleasant people, except that they had a stockpile of guns in the backyard. And they said, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-gay, anti-Democrat things to me. Like right off the bat, they insulted everyone I knew, basically. And, and I was like, oh, no, I, I can't let them know who I really am. And, and which was part of the, the challenge, I guess, of interviewing people is is not to, it, particularly people who, whose politics are really different from mine, is not to let them know what, who I am in a, in a certain kind of way so that I can get them to say things that are maybe contrary to their best interests. But it's complicated because I end up always liking them just in the interaction because these people were very friendly and pleasant and hospitable and they fed me lunch and they read the Bible to me. <laughs> it was kind of a fun day. And then I had to go home and, and write, you know, all the wacky things they had sent to me. So I hope your listeners aren't all militia members. I, I don't mean to insult anyone. <laughs> They're all tuning out right now. They're like, we've lost that listenership. Thanks a lot, John. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, I mean, their, their politics were totally different from mine, but I wanted to enter into their headset. Um, I mean, this was 19... 92 I guess um and they were they were kind of on the same wavelength as the unabomber i mean they were really radical anti-government anti uh like white supremacist i mean they they were just they couldn't have been more different from me but i really wanted to know where they were coming from so the challenge for me was to befriend them and and to kind of get inside their heads and it was surprisingly easy to do cuz they they couldn't have been nicer and so then i felt like i was really betraying them later when i you know, wrote the article in which I pretty much just had to say what they had to say to make it clear that they were, they had really extreme, crazy politics and wanted to, wanted to blow people up and so forth. So, But in a way, like like you said, put, quoting them, so it's in their own words. Yeah, so yeah, you're, indeed. you're not rep- misrepresenting but them. But there's a way they're... of quoting where you, you know you can pick out the quotes that, that make them look the way you want them to look. I mean, it's always a manipulation, I think, writing nonfiction, as much as it is writing fiction, because you're, you're picking the quotes and you're putting them in a certain order and you're emphasizing them in a particular kind of way. So it's, it's, always, a, it's always a manipulation, I think, um, which is one reason why I kind of stopped writing so much nonfiction because I felt like I would like my subjects and then I and then and then the editor would want a particular take on them that I didn't agree with and I would end up feeling guilty and and Joan Didion said somewhere uh, writers are always selling somebody out and and that it does kind of feel like that when when I was writing nonfiction it felt a little bit like I was uh, like it wasn't in their best interest to reveal themselves to me all the time so Writers are kind of duplicitous, sinister people, I think. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> As he laughs charmingly yeah. and with a, sort of a, a kindness that's coming through your eyes naturally. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, no, I, I, I... Well, it's interesting because um, then I I wonder... This, the stories... Um, talking about your fiction uh-huh. for a moment, so switching right. gears, though, what I did <clears throat> wrong... Um, uh, you're telling these stories that a witness to a time in uh-huh. in, in a place, New uh-huh. York City, um, in in the the um, is it the like the mid '90s yeah. for for what I did wrong, right, right. John? And so there's a way that this character is uh, Tom, the main character, the voice, the narrator of uh-huh. the book, is is walking us through um, his impressions of how and how he also feels that he is and often duplicitous with those around him in certain or well maybe that seems like a strong word to say but 
I guess I'm I'm wondering is that why um for a story that's still so close to home to you that that mirrors part some of your experience uh-huh. of living in, as a writer in New York City uh-huh. um and during that time um is that why these books were in fiction rather than like a, a non-fiction chronicle? I mean, it's a it's a good question. Or... Why uh, why why take certain material and write a novel about it rather than writing a non-fiction piece about it? Because I a, a lot of the stuff in what I did wrong, which was published in two thousand six, but is mostly about experiences I had from um, in particular from say nineteen ninety two ninety three. But then also going back to my childhood in New Jersey in the sixties and seventies, yeah, yes. indeed. So it's a big range of time, and and I and and some of the stuff that I that's in the book, in the novel, uh, is stuff that happened to me that I just sat down that day and wrote about in first person as John Weir, oh. and then kind of transposed it into a, a sort of fiction. But it, but I wanted the I wanted the voice in that novel in particular, what I did wrong. I wanted the voice to be. I think partly because I've been writing all this nonfiction leading up to my writing the book, I wanted to continue in that kind of nonfictional tone. Partly because I wanted I wanted the book to feel so immediate that it seemed like it was happening in the real world as you were reading it, um, and also because I was comfortable with that first-person voice, which I worked on developing when I was writing the articles for Details and and Spin and Rolling Stone. So so I, I like that documentarian tone and and I guess I want to a little bit mess with the reader's sense of what's fiction and what's and what's not fiction and and as I said earlier I think sometimes nonfiction is is more manipulated in a certain way than fiction is and I and I wanted to play with the reader's sense of there being a dividing line whether or not there is one between fictional stuff and, and actual stuff we're gonna take a short break John cool. and then we'll be back Groovy. And hear more. I'll we'll be carry here. on. All right. <laughs> John Weir today on Living Writers. Um, his novel, What I Did Wrong. John will be reading tomorrow at the University of Michigan Art Museum in the Helmut Stern Auditorium at 5. Um, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, we're glad you're here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers um, today. Um, John Weir is here Hi. in the studio. Hello, John. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, and a quick many thanks to Liz and Tex for being in the engineering booth here with Yay. us. And, and hello to Brian in Buffalo, if you're listening out there. Hi, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and that was from John. Um, John Weir, who is in town visiting, um, has just been to see a movie at the Michigan Theater. I went last night. <laughs> Indeed. I was supposed to be sleeping, but I went to see... The Descendants, I guess, with George Clooney, but it wasn't the movie. I walked by the, I walked, I mean, I, I, it was, I don't know, six or seven o'clock at night and I just walked out to sort of check out the neighborhood and I walked and I go see movies all the time. I'm, I'm a kind of an inveterate moviegoer and I walked by that theater and it was so beautiful. Well, I mean, we don't have a movie theater like that in New York City. It was like beautifully restored and, and, and it was $7. <laughs> which and the popcorn was five dollars or something which you know it's it's a 25 dollar proposition to go to the movies in new york city with popcorn so i was kind of amazed but it's a very beautiful theater i mean lovingly restored clearly so that was really nice and the other one it's the state theater the other one um which looks equally nice from the outside so it's that one's a little bit um like not not quite the same when you go in but uh -huh. its own quirky great self and shows uh -huh. the midnight movies too sometimes and uh -huh. um but it's a, one of those strange theaters where you go in and they've split what used to be a, a big oh, room right, right. so you're slightly tilted right you right know, right but it makes for an interesting angle of vision. Well, in Manhattan, we just have you know these gigantic multiplexes, and and they're kind of faceless, and and they have no personality. So it was really nice to see a movie. I mean, they had these nice old plush red velvet <laughs> seats, and it was just nice to be in the room actually. And the piano there, I guess they must show silent films or something. There was it's a, a pipe organ. Oh, nice. Which, so yeah, uh -huh. even now I'm now I sound like a bragger. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was Excuse it was me. it's a beautiful building. <laughs> Some Ann Arbor pride surfacing in, indeed, there. Indeed. <laughs> I've only been here since 2005, so uh -huh. it's um, anyway. But but John, okay, so um, you're here in town, and tomorrow you'll be at the art museum yes. at the Helmut Stern Auditorium, yes. um, reading. Um, and we've been talking about your novel, uh, What I Did Wrong, um, and maybe maybe we could hear a little bit from that if oh, okay. you wouldn't mind and also what will, what will you be reading tomorrow what tomorrow i'm reading some new stuff i'm reading part of a a short novel that i've been working on and then i'm also reading a a i guess a short story that was published maybe 3 years ago so 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 a little a little new stuff a little old stuff oh that sounds great and you'll be well, you'll be in, in, I think you are in the auditorium, because for a moment I was thinking maybe you'd be in the apps. There's like a new wing the... or something, apparently. There's a like a modern wing of the art museum, yes. and I think I'm in an auditorium in the in the basement of that building, maybe? Yes. That's what David Halpern told me, so. Well, this, it'll be, it'll be great. It'll be I'm great. I'm looking forward and... to it. I like to read, so that'll be fun. And thank you for coming. I'm really a frustrated actor. I mean, I, in, in my in a perfect <laughs> so... world, I would be performing in public all the time, so, so, it's, so it's nice to be able to read. So is that, is that one of the, because um, before the break, we were talking about these, the blurring of when the, when the writer is right. like writing in the eye voice and that. Right. And is that part of the, like the 1976 or those moments, or maybe even before that, when the character Tom is on stage um, or, or in the chorus room right, or right. are any of those moments like things that you mind from your own, like being on stage, West Side Story, right. I think was the. Yeah. <laughs> was, 
<laughs> yeah, no, that stuff was true. I mean, when I was in my, I grew up in New Jersey, in rural New Jersey, near the Delaware River, about an hour directly west from Manhattan. My father worked in Manhattan and commuted, and my parents belonged to this community theater group um, that they'd organized with their friends in this old grist mill on the Raritan River, the south branch of the Raritan River, and they put on plays all the time. My mother directed them, and my father played the drums. They they did Manuel Mancha and uh, <laughs> I love to dream the impossible. I could dream. sing the whole score for you if you <laughs> if if I had enough to drink, and the Fantastics and and I and I loved that. And and my brother and I hung around while they were rehearsing, and and so I from the age of five or something, I, I really wanted to be an actor and. So I did lots of plays in high school and then in college also. And once I got to New York, I I guess I chickened out and thought I would never have, I don't know, actors. They have such unbelievably hard lives, don't they? I mean, they're at the mercy of other people in order to work, in other words. And, and, and with writing, you can go home and write all by yourself. But So that was easier, I guess. Um, but anyway, I... I, I I, 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 I hang on to the acting, I think, by performing in a sense while I'm writing. It's, I, I have this sense of having a bunch of people in the room with me when I'm writing stuff. So it's kind of like I'm writing to them as I'm writing things down and imagining how they'll respond. So there's a, a certain kind of internalized performance aspect, I guess, of, of the stuff that I write. Um, not all of it, but, but, but a fair amount of it. And then I also write things that I know I will read out loud later. And so I want, I, I want it to be the kind of stuff... It's one reason why I write a lot in first person is because it's just easier to read that out loud because the audience feels like you're talking to them and it's uh, more personal or immediate or something. Well, it just, that strikes me um, as that's why the dialogue in what I did wrong is is so amazing. Huh. And that and there's, Thank you now for that saying I'm that. thinking about it, it, it's like there's also, that it move, there's it's moving so much through this. There isn't lots of experience Position now. I mean, the, well, now of course, then I turn to the page where I see Full of that exposition. There is some. <laughs> but, or, um, or, but then I think we're in his, in, we're in Tom's mind right. anyway. It's so kind of like a dramatic little... monologue in a way. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And the dialogue is the easiest thing for me to write because I, I'll sound crazy now, but I have you know voices talking to me all the time, and and I mean it's my own voice talking to me, but it's it's easy for me to sit down and it's sometimes like taking dictation. You know, I just get a conversation going in my head. And then I start writing it down, and and then later I revise it and cut stuff that doesn't work and add stuff and so forth. But I have a very chatty brain, and um, it's easy for me to kind of tune into my internal monologue and, and start writing stuff. And, and you gave that quality to your character in What I Did Wrong, Tom, as well, huh. because Zach literally is visiting him not just in his memories but will even chime in with com new conversational moments right if yeah, yeah, he's yeah. with the other his student justin or right, right. And zach will and then yeah, tom then, will almost respond to zach instead of justin yeah yeah and there'll be this playing with yeah indeed you know, yeah well the narrator yeah the narrator is thinking about his friend who died uh i don't know 10 years before or something and is kind of having a conversation with him in his head even while he's talking to other people in the present moment in his real life. And, and you know, I have, I mean, don't you have like songs running through your head any time of day or night or, or dialogue from movies or some argument you're still having with your mother after 35 years or something, so, or, or 15 years or, um, so. A hundred. <laughs> a hundred perhaps. And, uh, yeah, so I have a lot of chatter in my head and, and I wanted to, to convey some of that in the book of, of what it's like to, to be in my brain and to have um, so much, so much activity going on in there. 
you know, kind of on a 24-hour basis. And and you do, you you shift through, and you don't sound crazy, by the way. And you shift, oh, thank you. <laughs> but, but now I might sound crazy, because you're in the, in the novel, what I did wrong, you're shifting seamless, seamlessly um, through time, decades, uh-huh. and through characters. Uh-huh. And part of it might be then, like, that maybe it's because of these the voices presenting themselves. But I was thinking of this, this one moment in particular, John, and I almost, I feel like this is unfair because I just finished reading your book and oh, now okay. you're like, oh, well, <laughs> let, and we'll, we'll talk about the new work soon too. Oh. And then, um, I mean, like, as long as you bought it, that's all that matters. You don't actually have to read it. <laughs> well, this, one, this one's from the library. But um, anyway, but, um, but John, there's this moment in the book where you've got your, your, your main narrator, Tom, uh-huh. um, at the cemetery visiting Melville's grave with uh-huh. his student Justin, right. and they've ridden the bikes there across town, and um, and they're there. And then there's a, something he's speaking with Justin about Melville's son killing himself, Malcolm, his, right. or Malcolm. And then um, and then he thinks of his friend Zach who died, right. and who um, he missed his his final moment when he did die. Uh-huh. The, their friend, but he thinks about the death then he thinks about a couple of days before going to Macy's uh-huh. with Zach right and then and then you're suddenly in Macy's in that time and then you move back to Justin asking him what's professor what's wrong and there it's not as if you're using white sta- space on the page right. to indicate right. these huge shifts but it's it's working it's it's all run together but it's but you feel like you know, huh. like you're orienting, uh-huh. and huh. well, I mean, I, I did want there to be a kind of simultaneity of time happening in the book, where everything everything was occurring in this guy's mind at the same time. Even though he's walking down the street, he has the whole of his life in his head at the same time as he's you know buying groceries or something. So I wanted to convey that that way in which we all have the whole of our lives in our head in kind of one instant. Because that's because that's authentic. Is that, is that why? <laughs> um, I mean, that's my experience. You know, I, I, I I'm here with you now in this present moment, but I'm also thinking about you know where I'm going to have dinner later and w- whether or not my socks are clean and and how I felt about the people I just spoke to and and then maybe I'm thinking about the last time I got interviewed on the radio, which was at Queens College where I teach. Yes. And and the student really had no idea what she was doing and 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 I felt very foolish and and I'm thinking this is so much more fun and so I'm in like several different places at the same time as I'm talking to you and I kind of wanted that to come across in the book that sort of thought process or that being in several places at once experience that you can sometimes have I mean it happens more intensely in the book because the guy's dealing with a lot of trauma and I think that happens in traumatic experiences especially where you you kind of absent yourself in the present moment and 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 live in different parts of your life just to deal with whatever bad thing is happening in front of you. So, so I wanted that to come across also. And it does. Oh, and, thank and, you. And let's take, we'll take a short break cool. and we'll be right back. I'll today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you will too, listeners. <laughs> and you've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor today on the program. John Weir, his novel, What I Did Wrong. We'll be back.
Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hitzel, and today on the program, John Weir is here, and his book, What I Did Wrong, um, we've been talking about. Um, we've also got on the table The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket, which I'm so eager to read oh. as well. I, I've, well, thanks. I seem to have picked up like a student copy, so oh, I've even okay. got some parts to pay attention to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, it's out of print, so you, the, it's hard to get anything but a used copy at this point, so that's probably what you have there. I wonder if it could... The, yes, can they... Um, what does it take, then, for someone to... How can we bring these back? Well, you know, I think if I uh, signed a contract for a new novel, then, you know, maybe I could make a deal to, to bring the, the two of them back into print, or somebody will hear this radio show and think, oh, Oh, we should have John Weir's books in print, and then yes, <laughs> yes, I mean, we I don't know. should. It's a mysterious thing how you know how some books stay in print and some books go out of print, and they they go in and out of print. You know, sometimes they're out for a while. There there've been, I think, four different editions of my first book. Different uh, publishing companies have put out editions of it. So, uh, I think one thing that gets people to want to reprint stuff is if they're being read in college classes, because I'm guessing that's a big market for literary fiction is college English courses, which is why I'm really grateful that David Halpern is teaching my second novel in his two cl his two classes this semester. So I have colleagues at, at the school where I teach who assign their own books regularly, but the, I, 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 I don't know, it seems too egotistical somehow. I don't think I could actually do that, make my poor students go out and buy my book. So, so I have to rely on other people to assign it to people. And and you have you're you're working on on two two manuscripts right now, John. Yes, I am. And one is one is fiction, one one nonfiction. Yes. Uh, well, actually, I have a collection of stories uh, that I've been working on for the past five years, maybe, and I'm just about done with it. I'm 
finishing a long, I guess you'd have to call it a novella. It'll be maybe 150 pages and then four or five shorter stories. And I I want to finish that novella. I was supposed to have it done by now, actually, but I think it'll be another six months or something before it's done. And then then I have a, a lot of nonfiction that I've written over 15 years, maybe, that I wanted to... Is that the Kerouac, like the on the road and early draft or the, the Cheever, yeah, like the yeah. essays? Yeah, or, those um, essays would be part of it. I, I, I mean, part of this, the article about Timothy McVeigh that we were talking about earlier, um, the art, an article about a gay, fund, no, not a gay, <laughs> the opposite of gay, a Christian fundamentalist <laughs> church in Northern California, that, or Southern California, rather, that was producing anti-gay videos in the early 90s. I went and talked to some people there, and I, I went to a military base in North Carolina shortly after President Clinton lifted the ban on gays in the military to talk to people in the military to gay marines basically to see how they felt about the ban being lifted so i have i have articles like that that i wrote for details and uh oh we were talking earlier before we went on the air about an article i wrote about fiona apple for spin magazine girl Uh, trouble yeah girl trouble which was quite the troubling article to write I, i i i think i was 35 at the time and she was 19 and her her first record had just come out criminal which was getting a lot of attention and she was on the Lilith Fair tour in Atlanta performing and the the album had sold like a million copies or something and this editor at Spin Magazine called me up whom I had known at Details and he was now working at Spin and he was looking for somebody to write a piece about Fiona Apple whom I had never heard of and but I needed the money and um, I, I had taken the year off from teaching and I was actually broke and I said yes of course I'll do the article and <laughs> They flew me to Atlanta to meet Fiona Apple, who was completely enjoyable, really smart and funny and and kind of wacky and very dramatic, very theatrical and and having lots of conflicts and issues with the music industry at that point because she was only nineteen I mean she was a kid she was you know the age of some of my students, and she could have been my niece or something i I felt sort of parental towards her in a certain kind of way, and she was very upfront about her feelings about being made into a pop star suddenly, even though she had clearly been planning to be a pop star her entire life. <laughs> She'd clearly been rehearsing for it since she was five years old. So she knew how, how it was going to work. But but at the same time, she hadn't really anticipated the, the degree of kind of weird attention she was getting. And she'd also talked about having been raped when she was 12. She was really upfront about that and, and had told several media outlets about it. And at the same time, released this video in which she cavorted around semi-naked in a suburban rec room. And so there was this weird kind of sexual message happening that I think the editors of Spin Magazine were driven crazy by all these guys who were furious with Fiona Apple for A, talking about having been raped and B, making a sexy video. And it, it, it twisted the wires in their head somehow. And it became clear to me in the process of interviewing her that they wanted me to say that she was crazy, basically, you know, that they were looking for kind of a, a depiction of Fiona Apple as this out of control, that she hadn't, that she was a pawn of the music industry and that she really didn't have any talent and was being manipulated by record producers and managers and so forth. They really wanted a, a hack job. Oh. Yeah, horrible. And But I thought she was great. And I, and I listened to her record 
you know, and I, it's, it's, it's a delightful record and I really liked her music and, and she was obviously really talented and fun. So I wrote, but at the same time she would appear in front of me, um, in the process of my interviewing her, she'd like run into this room where she was being photographed and say to me, I'm going to make another record and I'm going to tell all these girls not to take any nonsense from anyone and then I'm going to die. She would say this while I'm sitting there with my pad, <laughs> writing it down. So I, in a, in a way she was daring me to re, to report on her in a way that, that made her look very theatrical. And anyway, it was all very complicated and everybody I think involved in writing the article had a kind of icky hidden agenda. I wanted the money and the Spin Magazine people wanted to punish her for for being talented and she wanted the publicity but at the same time wanted to rail against the whole publicity mechanism and and the article i wrote really wasn't um i tried to withdraw from writing it at a certain point because they the editors kept giving it back to me with paragraphs in it that i hadn't written saying that she wasn't really a very good musician and i wrote them and said look i'm this is not my article. If you want this, you should put your name on it. And it was a it was a whole unpleasant situation. And, and it, it came out, and and um, I wasn't happy at all with it. And then I went to a they had a party. The magazine had a party for that issue that she was on the cover of. And I saw her at the party, and she said to me, "You did to me in front of the entire world what my mean classmates did to me in the sixth grade." <laughs> and and then wouldn't speak to me. Then turned away. And and I was I was completely devastated by this because the last oh. thing I wanted to do was traumatize uh, another human being, another human being, but her in particular. Because I because on the other hand, you know, when you're interviewing somebody, you there's this kind of fantasy that you're going to become best friends for a little while just for the sake of getting a good story out of it. So I so I wanted her to like me, you know, and I wanted her to think I'd written a nice article about her because I respected her music. So and that was the what you had written it sounds like you had written or, or at least you had written an accurate as as you saw it representation of her which they yeah. edited and edited or well, I also reached. wanted to write an article about the whole process of writing an article <laughs> <laughs> which is what they told me up front they wanted edgy social commentary or something and I thought okay if that's what you want then I'm going to write about <laughs> how everyone is selling themselves out in this moment the magazine and the photographer and the artist and me and everyone is involved in this weird uh, I don't know collusion uh, against this individual, including the individual, and 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 they, you know, they took out all the references to the magazine. They wouldn't let me mention the name of the magazine. They wouldn't let me talk about the editorial stuff. So, I was disappointed in 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 the in the magazine. I have to say afterwards, that that was kind of the last big chunk of journalism I did. Um, I you know I got disgusted with myself and thought to hell with this. I'll I'll just be try and be a really good college teacher instead, which seemed like a more socially useful thing to do and does that and does that part of the vocation slow you down john with producing or do you think it's something that um because sometimes i feel like teaching come takes from the same place yeah as where yeah your, same kind of intellectual energy right or yeah. so yeah indeed and creative and intellectual energy teaching is very similar to writing i think in a certain kind of way but, yeah it totally slows me down <laughs> indeed especially because my students are also fun and interesting and and you know i, I it, it's like I've already written my novel every day just by sitting and talking to a number of students. Then I go home at night and I, I don't really need to be creative because I've spent the day meeting all these zany characters who come in my office and talk to me. And 
the creative work is kind of done. So, yeah, I have a hard time writing stuff during the semester when I'm teaching. I'm, I'm wondering if um, the new, what you are writing now, John, and, uh-huh. and I know we've been talking around it, and I, um, is it coming from the same... Um, is it coming from the same period of time? Is it coming when um, it, the the day of desperation and when AIDS was taking people, your your friends, the people you knew were, were dying around you? Because right. I feel like that's what I did wrong. You're surrounded by death and loss in, right. in the in the book, although right. you've got so much humor in it. I mean, uh-huh. I, I say surrounded by death and loss, and then there's this narrator and this voice and this mind, and I sent um, and and. And so I wonder what yeah, the what first is book your is the same deal. I mean, both the novels, um, the first novel very explicitly deals with AIDS, and the second novel, well, the second novel also explicitly. The second novel, I <laughs> I tried a little bit to to write about um, stuff outside of the AIDS crisis in the in the eighties and nineties, especially in New York City. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think I said what I had to say. And there's certainly huge amounts of stuff to say still about and will be for a long time about AIDS particularly on the global level which is why it's why I'm really happy to be reading on Thursday for World AIDS Day because it's you know it's a gigantic international global catastrophe um, AIDS and and there's I think the United States at some level has stopped paying attention to it I mean anyway publicly I don't think there's as much art being made about it there's as or as many news stories about it as there were 20 years ago so um so there's plenty of stuff to say and also about people in the US who are living with HIV there there're plenty of people who are you know i think people imagine that aids is gone and that that no one in the united states is is getting infected with HIV anymore but but there's plenty of people who are living with HIV and who have concerns about it and things to say about it and and their stories aren't really being told at the moment so but, I but can make it, a career but, out of but that. But yeah, the, but then it, it's not. But but you. I, that's what I wondered too. Is like, do you feel like it's up to you to tell those stories? Uh, because I mean, because you have been. Yeah. But I. I, but, I mean, it's never not going to be. If I'm writing personally about m- myself and the world, the AIDS is never going to be very far away from my sense of who I am in the world because it was such a big part of my. I mean, I've lived in New York for 31 years, and for. 20 of those years I was really dealing with uh, on, a, on a daily level with, with people having HIV and getting sick and having and having needs and so forth and, and my response to that. So, and, and just to go through the experience of, of watching a lot of people die, it, it has made its imprint on my consciousness in a way that I'm, that I'm never going to shake. I mean, it's just always there in the background as kind of a, a context, I guess. So, so that, that experience... Um, will always, I think, shape what I have to say about my experience in the world. But there are also lots of other things to write about that demand attention. So, and especially with this Occupy Wall Street stuff lately, which I've been attending to a little bit in New York City, uh, there's, there, with um, financial inequality and, and with, with budgets being cut left and right and with kids not having food for lunch i mean the you know the the world is a messy place right now so there's there's plenty of big important issues to think about and focus on and 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 i and i do try and keep the reader away that my characters know they're living in the political and social world that we live in at the at the at the moment i i i wouldn't want to write fiction that was divorced entirely from 
the the present, you know, economic, political, social moment. That's really important to me to have that be an aspect of my writing. I can, I can yes, I, I, guess. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> yes. um, but yes. the AIDS stuff, you know, on the other hand, I, I don't want to be for the rest of my life like the guy who writes novels about AIDS because, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, people aren't going to read that stuff. I mean, and just to be crass and, and materialistic about it, I mean, it's it's it, it there isn't like a gigantic audience for people suffer horribly and then die, you know, so, um, and which doesn't, you know, necessarily happen now in the U.S., but anyway, I, uh, um, I also want to be able to publish stuff, and so, so I have, you know, thoughts about the marketplace in my head at the same time, so, I mean, uh, inevitably, I guess. Well, you've got that audience in the room with you when you're writing. Yeah, indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And they're like, John, can we write about something cheerful for a change? <laughs> we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back. And, and we're going to take a really short break. We'll take a quick one. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, John Weir. We'll be back. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, John Weir is here, and we've been talking about his novels, What I Did Wrong, and The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket, and also talking about how John is here, and he's going to read tomorrow at the Art Museum um, for Day Without Art, World's AIDS Day. Um, John, thanks so much for coming to town. Oh, well, thank you. And for talking to me today. Well, thank you the, for inviting me. It's delightful. <laughs> well, consider yourself always invited. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll be back to tomorrow. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay for lunch. <laughs> well, that would be lovely. <laughs> um, and so we're and we're also talking about what you've been working on m recently. Right. And and so would you would you read something for us? Sure. Um. Uh. We know we've been talking about AIDS, but actually the stuff I'm writing now. <clears throat> isn't really about AIDS. Um, and I'm going to actually read some of this Thursday night. It's it's the very beginning of 
this short novel I'm writing, or I guess the word is novella, although I don't like that word. I don't know why. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds kind of trashy, like you'd buy it in a dime store or something. Although it would be nice to have people buy my stuff in a dime store, so maybe I should go with the word novella. This is just the very beginning of it, so it doesn't really need a setup. And I'll just read like a page and a half. The, the, it's called Made in USA, which is in fact the name of a French film directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, and and I, I'm 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 an inveterate film goer, and there's a lot of stuff in this piece about the narrator's obsession with film, in particular with French film. Um, anyway, so this is the very very beginning, <clears throat> and the, the the narrator Pete is talking. My buddy Mike shows up at my apartment at one in the morning with an empty whiskey glass and three hundred dollars in cash, which he says he owes me. It's not possible. No one has ever owed me money. Just the opposite. I owe money to everyone I know and a lot of people I don't, and there's no difference in my life between creditors and friends. Mike is one of my oldest friends, and he's standing in my living room in his Oxford cloth button-down shirt, khaki trousers, and black overcoat. He's an Italian guy from Boston. His dad was a hairdresser, but he dresses like a Kennedy as an act of defiance. On his feet are deck shoes without socks, though it's winter in New York. It's snowing, the snow beginning to stick fast and pile high. And Mike has come riding in from the storm, a morally compromised hero in a 50s western directed by Anthony Mann, his equivocal past hidden behind easy charm and a mask of goodwill. He carries his leather knapsack over his shoulder like a bursting mail pouch, and the silver lining of his cashmere coat is ripped. Crazy Pete, he calls me, though it's not my name. He says it like a request, experimentally, testing the ground before he takes a, a further step. Hey now, he says, coming through the door, which I left open for him after he buzzed unexpectedly from the street. He smells of wherever he's been, cold air and cigarette smoke and booze. Waving the, the, the new $300 bills, he raises his glass as if in a toast and says, hey you. That's the that's the very beginning. So, it's partly based on a, a a friend of mine who actually showed up at my door one night. He'd stayed at my apartment for maybe three months when I I was away, and and I and he, he suddenly had nowhere to live, and so he was living in my apartment. And and while he was there, he made a lot of trouble and disturbed all the neighbors, and everyone got mad, and and I had to kind of throw him out. <laughs> which I felt tremendously guilty about. And, 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 and then we didn't talk. We didn't talk to each other for a while. And then, he, and then one night he showed up in my apartment. You know, he hadn't paid me any rent or anything, which I, I didn't expect from him. Um, and he showed up in my apartment one night with, at midnight with $300 in cash. And, 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 you know, kind of in the middle of the night and, and unexpectedly. And he was kind of a, a wild guy. So I, I, wanted to write about, I wanted to write about that particular scene. And that is kind of growing now into a... A longer narrative. So is so is that what happens? Like there's these scenes that you can't ignore that, and then you can see them constructing themselves, yeah. and you start writing it. But then it's not like it stays attached to this one guy. Right, right. It moves it's, on to whatever area it has to. But you know, I'm kind of a. I don't know if it's because I'm an Aquarius, or or, <laughs> or if it's because I'm like completely d spacey and vague. But I find myself kind of falling into wacky experiences all the time you know my i teach creative writing in in new york city and my students are forever searching for material and inventing stuff about space aliens and talking trees and little dwarves and elves and stuff and 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 i 
I don't have to make anything up because I I just I'm I don't know instinctively drawn to odd situations and and so I could just sit down and write about what happened to me on getting on the subway that day and it would be a little story. So I I, I really don't have to. I tell my students that they don't have to invent stuff, but but I don't know maybe they don't fall into funny situations as easily as I do. I don't know. And and maybe it takes maybe that's for some people that a step because otherwise they don't know what you seem to really know that how it's shaping it and how it's what huh. you're telling you know the things that you're doing <laughs> yeah i guess i'm i guess i'm looking out for narrative opportunities perhaps and i do have a sort of detached quality where i'm uh especially if if painful things happen but also if funny things happen i'm, I'm thinking to myself okay how am i going to write about this and sometimes i i i i, I I feel like I, I'm actually staging things specifically to have something to write about later. So, yeah, there's a, my, my life is like a dress rehearsal for whatever I'm writing about. So, And you, can, and you even feel it sometimes in the moment. Like yeah. you're like, I'm going to press on this a little. Yeah, or... sometimes I'm aware of, of, well, I mean, more than aware. It's like, oh, okay, how, how's this going to look on the page? And sometimes it's necessary, you know, because you're, you're going through something particularly... Um, you know, at family events or something, at at, at family dinners, or and and which are always kind of complicated and weird, and and you're you're who you are right now in your life when you're around your parents, but you're also still twelve years old. You know, inevitably, <laughs> always, I immediately regress to childhood, and and I think, okay, the only way I'm going to survive this turkey dinner is by figuring out how I'm going to write it down later, and and so it's it's a strategy for coping, I think more than it's some, sometimes more than i mean sometimes it's uh keeps me a little too far away from my life and i have to i have to forget and say okay this is not research i'm just gonna sit down and have dinner right now and not think about how it's gonna look on the page later so sometimes that happens because you get practiced it's a way of seeing or experiencing something like you said those narrative opportunities yes indeed 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean so many are presented to me so uh I mean, just, you know, this afternoon I was standing outside in front of the place where I'm staying on Thayer, South Thayer, is that where oh, it is? The, the bell tower Across from the bell tower, yeah. And I was just standing there waiting for a, a friend of mine to show up, and we were going to go have coffee. My friend Holly Hughes, who is a wonderful performance artist, a fabulous person, she teaches here. And we went out and had coffee, and, and then I'm, I was standing outside waiting for her to show up, and... I was suddenly aware that no one in Ann Arbor ever just stands on the street corner idly everyone was on their way to school or something like that and, and you know in new york you can stand on the corner no one pays any attention to you but in 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 ann arbor people were like saying hello to me like hi and i thought what the hell do you mean by hi <laughs> uh, you know you don't say hi to people in the street in new york because who knows what they're up to and and i was trying to figure out what the hell that was about why were people being polite and friendly and and uh Anyway, I started composing a little narrative about it in my head as I was standing there. But then, but then Holly Hughes showed up, so that was the end of my story. And the beginning of another. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps the beginning of another, indeed. Indeed. Well, John, I'm so glad you came to Ann Arbor for this visit. And you'll, you said it's your first time, so hopefully 
It'll be, you'll be back. I'll be back and on a weekly basis, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it gets really, really cold here. Does it do that? It does. It yeah, does. that's what I'm told. And maybe that's why there's not so much standing around today, for example. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> but I mean, I'm more, in, in, in New York, I look at people all the time because it's a, a certain kind of voyeuristic pleasure in just watching people walk down the street. And I was starting to do that here and I was looking at people and, the, and they smiled at me and said hello. And <laughs> I like my anonymity had been stripped away from me, which I'm accustomed to in, in Manhattan. But I, I didn't have that same kind of anonymity here. So now I have to be careful, you know, um, because people will see me. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a good way. In a, exactly. In a good way. And well, well, John, let's see. Let me say once again that what, what can people... Um, when do you think people should start looking? Because I know you said it might even take six oh, months yeah, to finish. Because I mean, you're still in... A wor- it's still a, yeah. In the I mean, I'm guessing that 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 this manuscript I'm working on now will be ready to go, be ready to be to given to my agent in like the fall of 2012. So it's going to be another couple of years before. But I do have a story coming out. Well, a whole year in the Green Mountains Review, which comes from Vermont. Um, that's oh, coming yes. out in in September of 2012. And there's a, a story of mine in the current issue of Subtropics which I think is still on the newsstands. Um, and that comes from the University of Florida. It's edited by a, a, a novelist named David Levitt. And it's, it's a wonderful journal, Subtropics. costs 12 bucks or something. You can probably get it online if you can't find it at your local bookstore or magazine store or, or dime store or wherever you go. <laughs> For the novellas. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, John, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking me. And, and, and I should mention again, um, you can go and hear John Weir read in person uh, tomorrow at UMA, uh, Day Without Art, World AIDS Day. Um, that'll be 1st of December, tomorrow, Thursday, 5 o'clock um, in the Helmut Stern Auditorium. And tonight, our very own, the station, uh, um, the station's Alex Belhodge will be, of course, at the Work Gallery with his New Orleans Jazz Quartet. And that's happening at about at 8 o'clock. So that's, that'll be awesome. John Weir, thank you so much for that's talking well, with you. me. Thank you. It's delightful t- talking today. to you. And, um, and I can't wait to, to read the short stories. And it was a, so great to read what I did wrong. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. I'm John Weir. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Until next time. Just a disclaimer. That was a pre-recorded interview that you just heard. So Alex Belhaj actually will not be at the work gallery tonight. That was a magnificent event that happened previously. Thanks for listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Please stay tuned for free speech radio news and move your ass.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, May 22nd, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, NATO's plan for Afghanistan comes under scrutiny as more than a decade of war continues. In Alabama, human rights advocates call. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 23rd, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, In Egypt, voters turn out in large numbers for the country's first truly democratic presidential election. U.S. Congress debates a wide ranging transportation bill that could include the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. And we'll go to an Iowa town where residents point to health concerns in the shadow of a thriving industry. I breathe it every day. That poison kills more people than anything else. Down here, sometimes. That it is actually, it's like you can reach out and just grab it with your hands. It's that hazy and that foggy. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Tens of thousands of people marched in the streets of Montreal yesterday to mark the 100th day of the student strike. More than 100 demonstrators were arrested overnight. And more protests are planned today. From Canada, FSRN's Stephanie Clermont reports. Students and citizens filled the streets of Montreal yesterday to show support to the student strike and in defiance of special law 